Hey, it's the end of August, and you know what that means? It's earnings season. It's a time where ASX-listed businesses show themselves to the market and give you a reasonable directional view where their priorities may lie moving forward and how the market has served them over the last six months. For me, it's a really interesting time. Publicly disclosed information on financials, as well as a pretty good directional view in terms of where they're heading strategically. And I say that with a bit of a caveat. There's two areas or categories I've been really interested in of late. One being media companies and the other being pure play e-commerce businesses. Both of these categories face their own sets of opportunity and challenge. Both have really important strategic decisions they need to make moving forward. The common thread for both of these categories is they're both playing a global game full of global competitors. They're not afforded the same luxury and timing as categories that have had larger barriers to entry or have less globalized competition. Media in particular is incredibly global. If you think about how you're listening to this podcast, you're probably listening to it on Apple or you're listening to it on Spotify. You may be listening to it on Google. But the three things that they have in common is they are not Australian businesses. Ultimately, any e-commerce business can service Australia if they want. They can make the economics work and they believe the market's big enough. They can have an Australian presence. And we know Australian consumers are increasingly served by international media businesses. We know that Australian media businesses are increasingly served by international media businesses with subsidies via things like the News Media Code. Today, we are going to look at three businesses I feel have interesting decisions to make, differing opportunities and have consciously or unconsciously made statements that will impact their futures. These are Own Media, Adore Beauty and Southern Cross Osterio. My name is Ben Shepherd. Welcome to Signal. So I'm recording this on Sunday night. It's about 9.40 p.m., uh, 27th of the 8th. So uh, this should hopefully uh, push live uh, tomorrow, Monday 28th. Um, If anything happens in the interim, uh, that's my disclaimer. Uh, Sunday night, relaxing or trying to relax. Uh, My football team, North Melbourne, won this week, which was pretty good. Uh, We haven't had a win in 20 weeks, so that was nice. Uh, And I just watched the Boomers go down to Germany at the FIBA World Cup by two points, which was uh, tough. So I'm hoping they can bounce back, uh, make the round of 16 and really give it a nudge. Um, But that's me tonight. The focus, like we said earlier, is on three businesses. And one of the ones we're going to talk about first is O-Media. O-Media is a outdoor advertising business. Uh, It's the largest overall in Australia. Uh, currently trades at about 150 but it's had heights, pretty dizzying heights, uh, five years ago of about $4.20. That was just after it bought a business called AdShell and became a legitimate player in transit, uh, really kind of complementing its suite of, of outdoor assets. And then right now, you'd say it's probably about half of where it was pre-COVID, if you think about that sort of just before COVID period. So it started to see a bit of a dip between those heights of 18 and, and what it was seeing at the start of 2020. During COVID, outdoor was hit pretty hard. Uh, share price went down. Uh, but we've seen a, a pretty kind of reasonable kind of recovery to current levels over the last almost two years. 
worth disclosing uh, up front, I've got a small amount of Omedia shares. I bought them in 21, uh, probably about a similar level to their current price. I thought it was undervalued at the time. I uh, bought, yeah, a few and, yeah, still holding on to them. So, you know, it's a hold for me, um, but I want to disclose that. So OWIT operates in outdoor. It's a tough space, uh, but one of the benefits is it's really challenging if you're not an outdoor media company to operate in it. It's a uh, geographically incredibly diverse business. You've got sites all, all around Australia. Australia's a massive place. And it's incredibly massive if you think about having to maintain a network of outdoor inventory across every single state in regional and metro areas. That's that's tough. Uh, it deals with a ton of different um, masters ultimately. So it's got obviously shareholders um, for those businesses, but you've got a bunch of assets that aren't owned by these businesses. They're effectively like leased or there's some sort of revenue share. So when you sort of drive around, you see a billboard. Uh, it's generally the the land of which that billboard is on is not owned by the outdoor company. They've come to some sort of agreement with that owner, so they're a revenue share or an upfront commitment. But you think about all the different billboards you see every day, you know, hundreds if not thousands of, of, of landowners. So huge barriers to entry, which is is pretty good. I think in a market like Australia where a lot of areas have really low barriers to entry, outdoor definitely benefits from that. But there has been a lot of change in the industry over the last three to four years. Yes, COVID hit it hard, but there was change otherwise. Yeah, JC Deco bought APN Outdoor around similar period to when O bought AdShell. O and APN wanted to merge it got knocked back by the ACCC um, for reasons that were apparently linked to large format advertising in regional areas which is a pretty niche market it's a pretty small thing for uh, the ACCC to knock it back on if you ask me Woolworth bought shopper media which was private equity backed and was shopping pun not intended for a buyer uh, and Woolworths uh, sort of snuck in and, and rolled that into cartology and you've got QMS, which is owned by a private equity business called Quadrant, and they've been aggressively expanding as well. So outdoor, really pretty innovative, I think, financially. Uh, it's a growth sector, um, and it has done pretty well over the last 12 months. So those results are a half yearly. So when you look at their 23 numbers um, for the half, so that's the first half of the year, any comp them to the 22 comparable period, there's some on the surface pretty positive movement. Um, but I reckon 22 is not a good comp period. I think the best comp period is 19. Uh, 19 is, is pre-COVID. I think when you comp to a 22, you've got a, a period where the, the industry was absolutely sort of experiencing headwinds. So you should expect it to bounce. So those 22 comps, those 23 sort of period looking at the 22 comps, they don't really tell you the full story. The best story is how is it going if you compare it to what happened pre-COVID when it seemed to be flying. So if we look at the 19 numbers and compare them to 23, you've got a sort of tail of two areas. If you look at road formats and large format, in the first half of 19, that was 67.5 mil of revenue. The first half of 23, it's 103.4 mil of revenue, which is a significant, almost $40 million increase. 
transit in 19, which is things like, uh, uh, you know, public, public transport infrastructure, those sorts of things, they were sitting at 111.5 in 19 for the half. And for the same half in 23, it's sitting at 93.5. Uh, retail at 19 was 61.6 mil. Uh, retail for 23, 65 mil. Uh, airports fly for 19 was 32, yeah, 32.9 mil. Uh, for 23, it's 21 mil. And the area called Locate, which is sort of a kind of random roll-up of, of things like office towers and a few other areas, in 19, that was sitting at 23.1 for the half million dollars. Uh, for 23, that's sitting at $8.3 million. So what does it tell us? Well, it shows a massive buoyancy in large format. Large format's ultimately up 50% over that four-year period. I always, it's really hard to say this without sounding boastful, but I always thought, thought at that point that, that large format was was really missing out on some of the gains. It was It was starting to sort of, grow a little bit but it seemed to be sort of the last assets that were digitized and it sort of seemed to kind of uh, stall the growth a little bit um, but it's absolutely roaring at the moment but then you look at the other areas transit is is down it's down quite a bit uh, retail is marginally up fly is down 30 percent even though there's strong volumes back in airports and locates down over 50 percent so that's an interesting area. You've got a, a relatively sort of strong number, but it's, it's driven by one format. Um, the interesting thing for me when I think about it is large format is a really protected category in terms of disruption. Uh, leases are locked away for long terms, and it's really hard to compete head-to-head with the format in terms of the distinctive offering it has and the differentiation. It's incredibly big. It's in really sort of large trafficked areas. Uh, and I just don't think, if you're thinking about buying large format, there's a comparable replacement or substitution that's there. So I feel pretty good about large format. But one of the things that I'm a little bit concerned about, and I'm sure the people at OR as well, is 50% growth over that four-year period is significant. And how much future growth is contingent on new sites? I'd imagine it's quite a bit. At the same time, you've got transit, which is really challenged in terms of growth. It's down year on year and it's down on 19. So the trend is, is down. And then retail, which is looking okay in terms of its comp to 19, it's held, is really under threat from retail media, which despite a lot of the hype, hasn't really eventuated at the levels that we expect. And it absolutely hasn't eventuated in terms of physical inventory and physical revenue. But that retail category is really under threat from retail media as well as YouTube and platforms which go pretty hard after CP money and that sort of shopping money. Airport is incredibly pressured right now. In tough economies, even with high passenger volumes, when you're so reliant on technology businesses, consulting businesses, uh, high-end enterprise B2B, when those categories pull like they have at the moment, uh, you get quite a large amount of passenger supply that is not being met by the amount of advertiser demand. So it's an expensive format. Um, and looking at that portfolio, the question for me is when are they going to come back and are they going to come back at the same levels of spend that we saw them come back before? O does have a retail physical offering, but most retailers that I've seen at present in terms of retail media are looking at monetizing their digital platforms. 
because it's lower capital expenditure and it's easier to enter with a turnkey solution. And they believe they have a ton of endemic advertisers they can basically go to straight away. The question on a physical retail network is ultimately whether you can get it to scale. And the second one is, are there non-endemic advertisers that are going to want to move money from one channel to another and jump on board? All that said, the market really liked the OML results. And I think their belief is O and out of home generally is really well placed to take TV revenue. TV revenue is largely down year on year, which could give a sense that the medium is absolutely on the downward trend. But the real story for me is the comparable 22 numbers for television were incredibly inflated. TV had a great period during COVID, but it saw revenue growth absolutely increase. But if you compare that what's happened in 23 in terms of some of the audience drops and the natural heat coming out of the market, I think it's unlikely you're going to see similar drops in the next coming years to what we've seen this year. So TV will, will reset. It's pretty buoyant. I gave a comment to Mumbrella last week effectively saying the same thing off the back of the nine results. Now, if dollars do migrate from TV, my view is they'll go to two areas, YouTube and BVOD. A small portion may go to large format, but the growth here, like I said earlier, suggests that large formats already benefiting from brand spend migrations. So the bigger question or the bigger answer is large format needs more sites, but then ultimately you've got to think about are there any more incremental sites available that are as high quality? So I'm not as sold on the idea that TV money is going to migrate out. I think that's a bit of a simplistic observation and I just don't really see it happening. The bigger question for me, I think long-term about this stock is where is the transit and retail growth going to come from? Retail is much more competitive than it was pre-COVID and a ton of consumer product spend is tied up in Google Shopping, which is very tough to untangle. Transit is a bigger challenge. How do you ultimately reset the market view of this format when it is so reliant on public transport? It is so reliant on public spaces. Public spaces feel pretty buoyant to me, but the revenue suggests that it's not coming back at the same levels in terms of advertiser demand. Now, the market's a bit flat right now, but ultimately I think there's a job to do to give people a bigger reason to believe in that format. So the jury is out for me on whether Out of Home will take share from other formats. My view is it's more likely that the battle, real battle, is between the existing competitors. So it's a bit of a sort of net zero uh, in terms of uh, ultimate game. Uh, It's hard to see large format growing 50% like it has in the last three to four years and the next three to four years. And when right now that's the growth driver of O, Uh, The cue for me is where's the continued double-digit growth going to come from unless some of those above areas are going to be, you know, really ultimately sold. Number two we're going to look at is a business called Adore Beauty. We know last week we spoke about Temple and Webster. Uh, This week is a a bit of a contrast to what they did uh, in terms of what the Adore Beauty results tell us. I'm not a shareholder of Adore Beauty, but I'm a customer of Adore Beauty. Uh, And I do like the business. I think it's pretty strong. They're a retailer of beauty products. 
They listed in 2020 uh, quite uh, with quite a lot of PR at, at really high highs. The, the list price was at 670 Since then, it has been on a consistent downward trend. It now trades at $1. So it's lost, I don't know the math off the top of my head, but it's lost a fair chunk of its value. Its F23 numbers were not great. Uh, they were down 9.6% year on year, which was ultimately driven by customer numbers that were down about 8%. So for that full year, it did 181 mil of revenue and it eked out a, a pretty small profit. The margins in this business are really tough. The gross margins in particular, really, really difficult. So it's premium product, but it's tough to make a dollar. Now, when they went public, uh, Dor sort of threw out this, this pretty detailed prospectus. And in this prospectus, they effectively said that Frost and Sullivan estimated that sales of beauty and personal care products in Australia were at $10.9 billion in 2019. And for this year, this financial year 23, they're forecasting at $12.4 billion. They're big numbers. And you can see why people are excited about that. Now, when you look at the revenue of 181 and you contrast it to 12.4 billion, that says that Adore's got a market share right now in this market of 1.4%. It's pretty low. In the same document, in that same prospectus, they said that online beauty would be a $3.2 billion market by the end of this financial year. So based on that, they've got about 5.5 to 6% of the online market. So ultimately, this business has been around, I believe, for 10, 15 years, been listed for, for two. Um, it's, it's a high-growth business. It's operating in an area that, according to Frost & Sullivan, seems to be high-growth and growing at great, greater levels than the economy. But these really sort of small, kind of really tiny market share numbers. So looking a bit closer at the 23 result, you saw that Adore had 801,000 active customers. Of those, 490 had shopped with them the year before, and there were 311,000 that were new customers. Now, the new customers is where the challenge is, and it's where the opportunity is for businesses in e-com that are growing. You know that there's, a, there's something up when a business really starts telling you a big story about their repeat customers. There's no shame in having repeat customers, but you can't grow alone with just the same people. There's always natural churn. So Adore had uh, 311 new in the last 12 months. The 12 months prior to that, they had 398,000 new. 12 months prior to that, they had 458,000 new. And the 12 months prior to that, they had 371,000. You can see the 311 is the lowest number in that four-year period. Now, at the same time, this 22 to 23 comparable, uh, ARPU is up 3%. So the existing customers, great, they're coming back, uh, and that's, that's awesome, but you've got less customers and you've got pretty low kind of uh, 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 annual revenue per each of them. Now, you want to sort of really throw a bit of, sort of doom on top of that. It's not an inflation-adjusted figure, and inflation's been uh, pretty hairy this uh, last period. The headline for me and the challenge, the opportunity, however you want to look at it, 
right, is Adore does, just doesn't have enough new customers and it's becoming too reliant on its returning ones. Of the 872,000 customers they had in 2022, 490 returned. So that meant 382,000 churned out and didn't come back the next 12 months. So you got 382K out, you got 311K in, you got a 71K net decrease. And herein lies the big challenge of reliance on internal, of that, the reliance on repeat, not internal customers. Every retailer will churn around 40 to 50% per annum. Uh, unless you're a, a super big, sort of iconic kind of brand, effectively, you think it came out. There's not many of those. Consumers shop across brands. So ultimately, you're, you're always in a position where somebody can probably service them as well as you do. Adore competes not only with businesses like Mecca and Sephora, but it competes with tons of international businesses as well, selling a very similar range. So if you want to grow at quote unquote growth business rates, which was really, in my view, what was sold to investors in that prospectus, you just can't lose more customers than you add. Last week, we spoke about Temple and Webster. They've got the same issue, but they confronted it in their results. And they said, the only way to fix this is aggressive investment in brand marketing. Now, they talked about top of mind awareness. They talked about uh, penetration, market share, all those different things. Adore's kind of spoken about those, but they haven't explicitly addressed them. You've kind of got to do a bit of digging to see what the challenges are. So I don't know if they're confronting it to the levels that Temple and Webster are. The marketing initiatives they've outlined in the F23 results, pretty niche in my view, and they're pretty low volume in terms of reach. And they've got this real focus on content marketing, which is excellent, but it's just not growing the new customers to the level they need to be. So I don't think you throw that away, but I just think you can't not add mass marketing that's going to grow your audience and allow you to compete with businesses like Mecca. The thing that's, I think, amiss is there's no real admission of the challenges or the opportunities that business faces with top-of-mind awareness, and there's not the real admission of the likely challenges in terms of category buyer penetration. So you've got these, these areas that could really ultimately underpin this growth that was kind of alluded to. Uh, and turn a business from a $180 million business to maybe a billion-dollar business. But they're, they're, it's not really spoken. It's kind of unsaid. And they have a big challenge with Mecca. Mecca's an excellent business, huge brand awareness, huge and really valuable retail footprint, which adds significant top-of-mind awareness, but most importantly serves as just leaving, breathing, brand experience, brand promise. It's really hard to see how a lot of Google paid search, niche events, content marketing can compete with that and beat it. So in my view, a door needs to go big. It needs to spend the requisite amount to substantially elevate its brand. The margin profile of this business is really challenged. So I did some math myself. Based on their current margins, if you increased customer volume 20% on current ARPU, it would deliver you 21.5 mil in gross revenue. Now, here's the kicker. In my mind, to do that, you'd probably need about double that in marketing costs. So this is not going to be something that in the short term is washing its own face. But I think this is the cost that you pay. If you ignore brand marketing, 
you have a high reliance on returning customers, your new customer tap starts to run out, it gets really, really expensive to turn things around. Now, that may run counter to it being a sustainable business with a better margin profile. But without that investment, it's really hard to see how they can, can become a $500 million business in the next three to five years. So it feels it's really now or never. Do you settle on being a $180 million break-even business and look for a buyer who can take in your business, maybe turn up the ambition, strip some costs out and make it really profitable? Or would you, do you look at really closely what would need to be true for you to become a $500 million business? Well, I can tell you what it would be. You need more customers. You need 2 million plus Australian shoppers who think of you before they think of your competitors. That's the challenge. If you can do that, you can see the upside there. If you can't, it feels like this business has peaked. All right. The last one we're going to look at this week is Southern Cross Osterio. They reported late last week. Uh, they're an owner of a bunch of regional television assets. They own a bunch of radio stations as well. Uh, they also have launched a podcasting brand slash platform uh, over the last couple of years called Listener, and that's what we're going to focus on today. Radio is a good market. It's a good advertising product, but it's it's ultimately pretty low growth. Regional TV, tough. Um, again, not exactly a high growth category. Uh, more challenge than ever it's been. So listeners really where the interesting part of Osterio's business uh, sits. And it's a really good barometer, I think, of, of how podcast advertising and how the podcast ecosystem in Australia at a local level um, is performing. And what its economic prospects look like. So what uh, Osteria did is they they split out the listener results. Uh, when you split out results, I think you're trying to tell a growth story. You're trying to show a bit of pride. Um, so it, it gives you a pretty good example of where this business uh, views listener. Uh, they do a huge amount of PR. I don't think I've seen uh, many more PR about a business locally um, than listener. So it feels like a big deal. Uh, it's grown its network in the last twelve months in terms of its, its uh, podcast that it represents or records um, from a claim 3.3 million listeners to 8.1. Uh, they have a, a bunch of, of really good products. Um, there's one podcast, uh, KickPod, uh, with Laura Henshaw, Steph Claire Smith, um, which is, is great. I was lucky enough to do a, a very small amount of work for them in the past. Um, they used to self-produce. Now they produce through listener. Um, I'm sure they would, would tell anybody it's been a great experience. The show sounds awesome. Uh, commercially, it's been better for them. So I, I sort of would like to think that's reflective of the product generally. Uh, very happy talent. Um, really great production. Really good. So you can see why the listeners are going up. Uh, and I can, from the outside, as an as a advertising person, as well as somebody who's worked with some content creators, see the appeal of listener in terms of um, a partner for these people. So you've got this listener increase in terms of listeners up 250%. At the same time, revenue was up 36.2, which worked out about an additional 5.7 mil. 
And for that 12 months, listener broke out losses of 15.2 million um, for the year. So their view is on a on a what they think is a pretty stable current cost base. It be, can become break even um, on the current growth trajectory in sort of two to three years. And it feels like the assumption there is, you know, no massive kind of cost blowouts. Um, however, podcasting, I'm sure of a sample size of one, probably not representative, just doesn't feel like it's popping in Australia with advertisers like it is with listeners. And I think there's a key reason behind that. I think it's a pretty important one, but a pretty boring one too. It's not talent. It's not production. It's advertising infrastructure. The pipes, the plumbing, the systems, the platforms that make sure that the right ad gets to the right listener at scale and is reported on, transacted, all the things that you don't probably think about as a listener, but if you work in the advertising industry, it's increasingly what our job is. So the podcasting ad infrastructure is really similar to digital 20 years ago. I'm showing my age in terms of I, that is not something I've observed or read about. That's something I was there for. It was fragmented. It was confusing. It lacked any real standards. It lacked any real common currency. Uh, and that's what podcasting feels like right now in terms of ads. Radio networks locally have, in my mind, been loath to invest in digital advertising infrastructure as they've been pretty reluctant generally to commit to any sort of long-term capital investments. Radio is a pretty heavy kind of talent-driven business and they pay talent well but they haven't been exactly the, the biggest strategic investors uh, in infrastructure or, or systems or platforms. Ad infrastructure needs high investment. And my view is listeners growing, it's doing an incredible job with talent, it's doing a great job with its audience. And listeners, the local operator, most likely, I think, to take the lead in this space. And it's got ultimately a strategic decision to make on whether it waits for someone else to solve that infrastructure, an international business, a platform, a aggregator, who knows, right? Or whether it decides we're going to fix it, we're motivated, we're going to spend the money, we're going to solve it. So does it invest meaningfully or does it seek to sort of make the business grow in its current less sophisticated, less technologically advanced iteration? Again, listener has to, I think, back this in. They have to be the one that fix it. But when I read the SCA results, it felt very unlikely that that's going to be the case. There's an entire slide in the deck that talks about reduced capital expenditure. They want to get it down to $19.3 million annually for the entire business. And in 24, there's an appetite to cut it even further Building a high sophisticated ad infrastructure could be a 20 to $25 million forward investment over a couple of years that is going to fuel the next six to 10 years of growth. I think one that will lay the foundations for a meaningful business and make listener absolutely the number one in this space. Now, if we think of a comparable analog, TV is a really good example of someone who did the right stuff here. They spent the money. They set up infrastructure for BVOD and they've seen it become their core growth driver and move from something that was virtually non-existent financially to a mid-nine-figure business and one they think is going to be a billion-dollar business. So podcast right now for Southern Cross is $21 million of revenue. To give you a comparable, that's 4% 
of their total revenue. Now that number's got to really scale to maintain the current pipeline of content. So 21 mil with the current slate, it's got to grow. You'd be thinking, you know, you have ambitions of say 100 mil in three years, but you need it to be that big because these podcast creators are going to follow the money to whoever can crack this. So whoever can turbocharge the category is going to see a really unfair share, in my view, of talent migrating to them. They're going to see an unfair share of advertising migrating to them as well. If you think about the flywheel of content, creators, advertising, they all need to be firing for that to really happen. It would, in my view, make sense to use some of the profit, still a profitable business, Southern Cross, from the legacy business and find a way to fix that massive barrier of podcast scaling, which is that infrastructure. Otherwise, I'm concerned listener may never reach its real potential and could remain a 4 6 8% marginal financial contributor to the business. The opportunity is absolutely there, but I'd love to see listener take the bull by the horns, fix this, and be the ones who nail podcast advertising and make it a meaningful part of the entire ecosystem. All right, thank you for listening. Uh, it's probably been a little bit longer than my uh, promised 20 minutes, but uh, hopefully it's been worth it. Um, if you like what you hear, please rate and review. Uh, five stars, uh, loving that. Love the feedback that's come through this week. Really appreciative. So if you want to email me, please do ben at bensheppard.com.au. Now, before I go, I uh, got asked a couple of questions this week about podcasts that I really like to listen to. And to be honest, uh, I probably have been quite inspired by these ones and thought, hey, I love what they do. Maybe I can try and do something uh, equally as uh, as interesting. So I wanted to recommend five to you. Uh, hopefully you can seek them out. I might try and put them in the show notes. But um, uh, one is The Town by a guy called Matt Baloney. Uh, it's an American podcast about uh, Hollywood, uh, show business. Uh, it's part of the Ringer Network. It's also connected to Puck. Uh, incredible, great podcast, uh, absolutely right uh, on the cusp. The other one is uh, Recode Media with a, a guy called Peter Kafka. Uh, it's part of Recode and Box, uh, tackles technology, digital, media, uh, all the sort of excellent ecosystem of, of where things are heading. Uh, weekly, couple of times a week, really good. Uh, third one I wanted to shine a light on is Unmade by Tim Burrows. Um, Tim is absolutely the best uh, analyst uh, and thinker in, in media in Australia. Uh, his weekend newsletter is just incredible, has a really great view. And, and with Unmade, he was always awesome at Mumbrella, but with Unmade, he's just taken it even further in terms of analysis on businesses. Uh, absolutely essential, essential listening uh, for me. Number four is the Marchand and Uran podcast on the New York Post. These are two sports business and media analysts that are out of New York. Um, they look at uh, the business of sport, sport media, sport marketing. Um, really interesting covering, obviously, the most uh, impressive market for that. And number five is a podcast called Sharp Tech um, with a, a fellow named Andrew Sharp, who also hosts a podcast called The Greatest of All Talk, which is an incredible NBA podcast. Um, and uh, Stratechery is Ben Thompson. Uh, it's a paywalled podcast, but they do release one free one a week. 
uh, incredibly uh, sharp views on on technology and where all that's heading. And um, yeah, one of my my absolute favorite listens. So if you like what you've heard today, or you didn't like it and you want something a bit better, uh, those five uh, I can heartily recommend. So uh, thank you for listening. Have a great week, and I will catch you next Monday. Thank you.